Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Cheryl Finley. She holds a PhD in African American Studies and History of Art from Yale University. She is director of the Atlanta University Center Art History and Curatorial Studies Collective and distinguished visiting professor of art history at Spelman College. A visionary leader committed to engaging strategic partners to transform the art and culture industry, she leads an innovative undergraduate program at the world's largest HBCU consortium in preparing the next generation of African-American museum and visual arts professionals. Cheryl is a curator, contemporary art critic, and award-winning author, noted for Committed to Memory, the Art of the Slave Ship Icon. Her book, printed by Princeton University Press in 2018, is the first in-depth study of the most famous image associated with the memory of slavery, the schematic engraving of a packed slave ship hold. Her research educates many of us about the art, architecture, poetry, and film the image has inspired since its creation in Britain in 1788. Cheryl is currently on leave from Cornell University, where she is Associate Professor of Art History. Her current book project, Black Market Inside the Art World, aims to diversify the global art economy, focusing on the relationship among artists, museums, biennials, and migration. It gives me pleasure to feature Cheryl Finley on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Enjoy this episode. Cheryl, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am delighted to feature you. Thank you so much, Phyllis. I'm so excited to be here speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a lot to cover. So let's start with me asking you, you've had experience as an art historian, author, curator, and critic. What do you enjoy the most about what you do? I love telling stories. So sometimes there are stories that have to be told. And one of the stories that I felt it was necessary to tell is one of an image that I call the slave ship icon. And this is an, a story, a biography of the most famous image associated with the memory of slavery. It's a schematic engraving of a packed slave ship hold that was conceived by abolitionists in Britain in the late 18th century. And this is an image that I came across when I was in graduate school studying for my PhD in art history and African-American studies in a class on the long 18th century taught at the British Art Center at Yale. And I was charged with doing what's called an object lesson to give a sort of a presentation, a report, research on 
an image or an object from the collection, the most expansive collection of British art and archives and objects outside of the UK. And I wanted to tell a story about the production of space in the city of Liverpool. My study went from 1650 to 1850, and I was interested in studying the production of space in this city, how the city grew over a 200 year period from a small village to one of the most sophisticated cities with a dry docking system that was the rival of all of the world. And this is because of the city's investment, heavy investment in the transatlantic slave trade in a practice that was called privateering, uh, where they were able to, by the end of the, of the 18th century, um, have the, one of the heaviest investments in the transatlantic slave trade on the part of Great Britain. And in this study, I decided to use ephemera, that is printed matter, books, prints, um, city guides, maps uh, that would give a picture of what the city looked like in 1650, how it grew to be a more sophisticated place by 1850. And in so doing, I came across this image that I mentioned earlier, uh, the schematic engraving of a packed slave ship hold one that I have come to call the slave ship icon. And I recalled that I had seen this image as a young person growing up in Silver Spring, Maryland. We had a book by Langston Hughes and Milton Meltzer, a book called A Pictorial History of the Negro in America on the bookshelf downstairs in the playroom. And it was, it's the first or second image in this book. And around the time that I was in graduate school, it was in the mid to late 1990s, this was also a time when there was a lot of, I would say, you know, excitement and energy in the Black arts community, in, you know, um, different legal and political uh, communities around thinking about reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans. A bill was introduced um, to bring this about uh, in Congress. There was a book written um, by Randall Robinson called The Debt by 1998. President Clinton had traveled to West Africa, uh, to Senegal, to the very famous House of Slaves, Maison des Esclaves, where he was expected to give a, a, an apology for slavery, um, but this did not happen. Uh, many contemporary artists were also, by this time, from Tom Feelings to Magda Campos Pons uh, to Carrie Mae Weems, uh, they were also thinking about the relationship between Africa and um, the Americas, uh, the transatlantic crossing, and also the history of slavery. Many artists were actually doing the kind of archival work that I needed to do to write this book mm -hmm. to really think about the relationship between, you know, the 1990s, that particular time period, and this historical arc. Again, this idea of filling in the narratives and really trying to understand how we get to a certain place in, in history and in time. So this is a, a book that, you know, that I, I wrote um, that uh, I felt that I had to tell not just a history of this image, and many people have written about it before, but frequently the narrative began in 1788 when the abolitionists are working together, Society for, it's called the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, uh, based in London, but with affiliates around uh, Great Britain and elsewhere. 
And many of the people are historians and historians who wrote about this image and its effect um, by the end of the 18th century, more than 200,000 impressions had been made. And it was really the single piece of ephemera, um, a political print that brought about awareness um, uh, to uh, parliamentarians, but also to the everyday common person that the slave trade was something that was inhumane and it needed to be ended. And the narratives though that had been told were ones that were focused in the 18th century, in the 19th century through to the end of, of slavery as a practice, as an institution. And what I wanted to talk about was the role of memory um, and how we can look at archival images and how um, artists, uh, historians, art historians and many others kind of go back to the archives to do not just research, but also to understand the relationship between the past and the present. And I was really interested in the phenomenon of contemporary artists working you know, in the 1990s and even years before that in resurrecting this image and using it as um, a way to understand the moment in which they lived, to understand you know, how it was that black people became a part of a diaspora. So it's very much about understanding you know, identity formation, but also thinking about a ritualized practice of remembering a certain politics of remembering that tries to relate things like policing, for example, some of the very issues that we're dealing with today with regards to structural racism or the prison industrial complex, or even thinking about religious practices, how this image is one that they can use um, in their works as photographers, as painters, as installation artists, architects, musicians, poets, playwrights. Um, and so the book is one that was very reflexive. And I, I, I talk about a couple of different things sort of theoretically. Um, one is a, a term I call symbolic possession of the past, how these artists engage in a ritualized practice of kind of, you know, going back to history and, and thinking about how it relates to the present moment, or even a uh, a practice that is involving memory, the mnemonic, you know, so this is a practice of mnemonic aesthetics that I talk about too in the book that, you know, deals with thinking about the ritualized practice that um, that brings about the use of this image, the presentation and representation and re reconception of a, of a specific image that has again to do with looking at this foundational moment of Black people becoming a part of a diaspora. That's amazing. Oh my God, how many years? Well, the first paper that I wrote uh, about this uh, image uh, was written in, in 1998. It, it won a prize uh, named after a woman named Sylvia Arden Boone, who was the first Black woman to uh, earn tenure at Yale, who was an art historian, mm. amazing, amazing, uh, prolific art historian. And so I would say it was about, uh, you know, a 20-year period between when I began my research and when the book was published. And that would have involved travel um, around the Atlantic Rim. I went to Ghana, I went to Senegal, I was in and out of archives in, um, in London, in, in, in Paris, um, in, in Bordeaux, uh, also um, in Lisbon. I actually learned Portuguese um, in order to write this book. Um, these are the kinds of things that, you know, that we have to do. And I love languages. So that was something that I was really excited to be able to do. I was a Spanish major in college. 
Um, but I also, you know, went to archives in the Caribbean, in um, in South America, in Sao Paulo, um, in different parts of the United States as well. Um, many of um, the colleges and universities that were founded early here in the United States have really extensive archives of these historical documents that relate to the history of slavery and the slave trade. So I was able to take advantage of these archives as well. Um, and it was really exciting. And it was a time where it wasn't just, you know, going into libraries and looking at archives, but also I spoke with a number of artists who were in the practice of actually working on works of art that ultimately became uh, works that I, I uh, wrote about in the book. It involved interviews with artists, but even interviews with people who went to places like Gore Island or people who were travelers, um, very interested in in tourism and heritage tourism, which was one of the first things I wrote about even before the book was published, based on my research in Ghana at uh, Cape Coast Castle um, and Elmina um, on, on the coast of Ghana. And, um, and I was really interested when I went there in the ways in which tourists, uh, people who often are called roots tourists, heritage tourists, um, who had gone you know, in scare quotes, back to parts of uh, the African continent, West Africa in particular, in search of their roots. And this is well before a lot of the work that has been done, um, really important work that has been done, for example, um, in mapping the DNA sequenced so that we really, you know, might actually know where we come from. But it's more symbolic, again, getting back to this idea of symbolic possession of the past, to be able to say that I've been there and to understand the interactions between, you know, heritage tourists who might be from uh, the Caribbean or um, from African-American homes in Washington or New York, or even heritage tourists who come from different parts of England who are not of African descent, who will go to those places for the very same reason, because they would have been the descendants of people who would have been the slave traders or the governors of those, of those historic sites. So I was interested in the conversations that took place uh, between uh, the different groups of heritage tourists. And this is something else that's um, also in the book. What, what would you say has been your most rewarding career experience? My most rewarding career experience is happening right now. Um, and I feel like I've hit my stride um, at this particular moment uh, as director of the Atlanta University Center Art History and Curatorial Studies Collective. We're a program based at Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta University at the largest HBCU network in the country that was designed in 2018 and launched with a $5.4 million grant from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. And this program is one that serves undergraduates. It also has an early college program that's part of it with the express purpose of preparing the next generation of African-American art historians and curators, people who will go out and completely transform the art industry as we know it today. About five years ago in 2015, the Mellon Foundation conducted a study of the museum professions and found that in the roles of leadership within the museum, that there was an extremely low percentage of people of color in roles as curator or director and other leadership roles within the museum and art ecosystem. 
And the numbers uh, in 2015 for African-Americans was somewhere around maybe 2%. It increased a couple of years after that to maybe 4%. And the numbers are going up um, due to a number of other initiatives like our program that are really trying to begin early to prepare students for careers and leadership roles within the art industry. And what's so exciting about what I'm doing now is it's actually for me exactly what I set out to do when I studied for the PhD. I left a very lucrative career as an art appraiser and art consultant and writer uh, to go back to graduate school. And at that time, I saw a need to be able to, I really wanted to train and work with African-American students. They might be students who go on to study to become doctors or lawyers or financiers, um, but hopefully they'll also choose to go into the art industry as curators or art historians or preparators or critics. Um, or even to work as registrars for that matter. But I, I, when I was working as an art appraiser, I never saw anyone who looked like me. When I went in and out of the major auction houses in the late 80s and early 90s, Christie's, Sotheby's, all of them, I never saw anyone who looked like me, whether they were you know, people who were working the telephones or the auctioneer, or even the work of art, works of art that were being sold or for that matter, the people who were there purchasing works of art. And so I set out to, when I went to graduate school, to think about what would it be like if, if I could do this type of work to create something where there would be students who graduate, they may go on to other careers, but that in the end, they'll decide when it's time for me to make a legacy donation, when it's time for me to think about how I might want to build my own art collection when it's time for me to think about establishing a museum that they have you know, the training and the research and the knowledge behind themselves to do that type of work. So I'm really excited about this program. It's interdisciplinary. It's one that really takes a different look at the discipline of art history that tries to build bridges from uh, the arts to the sciences, from the arts to technology. We are doing work with blockchain technology to reimagine what um, registrarial practice and collections management practices might look like. Uh, we do a lot with career planning. So we like to think about um, this program as a wraparound program that begins with students in 11th and 12th grade, works with students throughout their four years in college, and then works with them as they're graduating to think about, okay, what graduate program do you want to go into? What type of career would you like to pursue to be able to prepare students so that when they finish, they have either a job waiting for them or they have a graduate program also waiting for them when they finish. So it's also a leadership program. And I think that's really important to think about establishing and leading a program that has leadership components in it. Well, you should feel so proud. The work you do is, is fascinating and in the long-term impact is gonna be so wonderful. So share with us, what projects are you working on now? Thank you so much, Phyllis. You know, I do think that the AUCR Collective is going to have a huge impact. And I know um, even now, the kind of national and international notice we are getting 
even as we are locked down in a pandemic, it's it's helping us and and the program and the students in the program to make progress and inroads into changing the kinds of leadership roles that are available um, to Black students um, in the art world. We can see the results already. And just as an example, we are graduating our first class this coming May. And it's exciting to know how students have already been able to secure places in graduate programs and how they're already thinking about what their own career tra trajectories are going to be. And in terms of you know, the kinds of things that we're working on, I mentioned earlier that we've been doing some work on blockchain technology and looking at that technology as a way to enable our students to work with contemporary artists on things like smart contracts or to be able to enter into careers in the museum and help registrars to consider innovative ways to change how collections management takes place within the museum. So this is one thing that uh, we're working on. Another project that I started right when I arrived in Atlanta in late 2018, early 2019 was a project called Mapping Art History at the Atlanta University Center. And it's part of a project that involves archives, museums, and collections of art and art histories at the more than 100 HBCUs that still exist today in the United States. It also involves things like technology, and placemaking and conservation. I was really interested when I arrived in Atlanta because I've never lived there before. My sister went to Spelman, my brother went to Morehouse, my grandfather went to Morehouse. I was really interested in getting to know the city of Atlanta, but also really trying to understand what the history of art was in and around the AUC. For example, Hale Woodruff, um, the wonderful muralist and um, art historian teacher who helped to establish the art departments um, at the AUC with Nancy Elizabeth Prophet, amazing sculptor uh, originally from uh, Rhode Island, um, but was based um, in Atlanta at the AUC. They did this in the 1930s and 1940s. These two artists also worked in the buildings that still exist on the campus, these historic buildings at Spelman, at Clark Atlanta, and at Morehouse. And so to know that, for example, Hale Woodruff painted his very famous uh, 1939 Amistad murals that are now at Talladega College that were commissioned for the 100th anniversary um, of the Amistad mutiny, he painted those murals um, on Spelman's campus. So when I began to learn this from my colleagues, um, from people who've been there for some time or from reading other exhibition catalogs, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if we could think about a story that uses contemporary technology, a narrative that uses contemporary technology to be able to map this history, not just on our campus involving these schools, but also to think about a type of map that could go you know, to different parts of the United States where we know Black artists and their allies were working, and not just different parts of the United States, but also to West Africa, to Europe, to South America, to the Caribbean. So this is an, an, a project that I'm working on with students. Um, they've uh, done some really amazing work already. Uh, last summer, there were three students who worked with a group called Smart History. It's an online public history platform using Story Maps, uh, a program that's produced by Night Labs to begin uh, tracking um, these histories. 
Another project that I'm working on is a book called Black Market Inside the Art World, um, which is looking at the history of the art industry as it relates to Black artists um, and not just, say, the you know, the very, very well-known contemporary artists that we're aware of today, but thinking even all the way back to the mid to late 19th century, using things like travel and tourism, uh, what I like to call art tourism, to imagine how Black artists become part of a larger ecosystem that doesn't just reside in the United States, but that has uh, many different facets of it evolving in and around the world in the Caribbean, if you look at the career of someone like Lois Maylou Jones, or if you look at the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, or if you look at the work of other contemporary artists, especially those who've done so well as to be able to establish their own um, spaces where other artists can be invited to study, someone like Kahinde Wiley, who established BlackRock um, in Senegal, or Mark Bradford, his art plus practice in Los Angeles and so on. So this is a really exciting project that is seeking to look at the work of collectors, artists, museums, foundations from a historical perspective that considers the circulation of people and ideas of travel and tourism of studios in multiple cities and, and so on. And I have a memoir too. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot that I'm working on, um, a memoir called Pictures in My Mother's House that's about, you know, growing up in and around a collection of art that my parents collected from their friends at Howard University and more. Cheryl, this has been a great talk. So as we wind down, I want to ask you one, one more full, full body question, and that is, what do you feel will be the upside of COVID and the Black Lives Matters movement? Thank you for asking that question, Phyllis. I think that, you know, as we've seen uh, over the past almost year now, there's been a lot of reevaluation and introspection. And if we take a moment and pause to think about museums as institutions that are, in a sense, the product of colonialism, much of the conversation that has been happening in the classroom, uh, in curatorial studies and museum studies programs has been about that. And I think a lot of the administrators, directors, and people in leadership roles, including boards of directors, have been thinking about this history and what its implications are. So when we think about the impact of COVID and also Black Lives Matter, right? For example, exhibitions, there are many exhibitions that have been moved outside, they've been moved online, uh, they've been moved to uh, two communities uh, within the communities um, uh, that are surrounding the institutions that that exist. Some museums are doing things like projections and installations and site-based or virtual exhibitions. Of course, we know that um, COVID has had a, an awful impact on so many industries in terms of the loss of jobs and revenues. Um, but I think that that is the type of thing that we have to really take an entrepreneurial mindset to, to identify the problems, right? And to find um, solutions, to find solutions that include things like resource sharing, uh, to imagine and really try to establish um, strategic partnerships and to engage in collaboration. Sometimes collaboration with um, institutions or individuals that might not seem that familiar, um, to think about new perspectives, to build interdisciplinary bridges to things like science and technology, to business and innovation. 
where curatorial practice is concerned, again, um, involving things like community-based curating, involving technology, really thinking of the museum as one that, that caters to the, the people who live in and around um, the museum. So that, I mean, I, I think one of, one of the things that many people have been able to take comfort and solace in, although we're all pretty much zoomed out, um, but is the <laughs> way that we've been able to connect to people from around the world as a result of really trying to figure out how to continue the work that we need to do, whether it's teaching, whether it's curating exhibitions, whether it's making art, um, that there have been ways that many people have found um, connections to others from across the globe. And I think this has been a successful thing. I know when we we innovated last summer to do um, our own in-house internship program, we were able to get specialists from around the globe to speak with our students. I think for museums and for art and culture institutions, it's time for mission statements to be reevaluated. It's time for boards to become more diverse for leadership and curatorial and administrative staff as well. And also to have social justice as a pillar of meaning uh, within these mission statements themselves. So to think about social entrepreneurship perhaps um, as a way of trying to restructure um, the practices um, and thought processes and even missions of some of these institutions. Thank you so much. This has been a very informative and interesting talk. And I, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much, Phyllis. You take care. You too. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.